Turn to John chapter 9. We're coming to the end of the story of the man born blind. And Jesus healed him. And we see the contrast set up between that man who was born blind and the Pharisees. And that contrast is still still central to the text as we're studying it this morning. The one was physically blind, but had his physical eyes and his spiritual eyes opened. The others, the Pharisees, had no problem with their physical eyes, and they claimed to be spiritual guides, but Jesus makes clear that they are spiritually blind. So what we're going to focus on this morning is this little statement that Jesus speaks to the Pharisees. Again, it's in contrast to the man born blind. Near the end of our text where he says, Since you say we see, your sin remains. Since the Pharisees claim to be able to see, their sin remains. We're going to see that we ourselves often fall into that same sin of the Pharisees in claiming to be righteous, in claiming to be wise, in claiming to see in various ways while being blind to our own sin. So please stand for the reading of God's Word from John chapter 9, starting in verse 24. So a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He then answered, Whether he is a sinner I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. So they said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? They reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, Well, here is an amazing thing, that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners. But if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born entirely in sins, and are you teaching us? So they put him out. Jesus heard that they had put him out, and finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. 
Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, We see, your sin remains. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. What a story. You think of the ending of this story and how beautiful it is. This man testifies to the work of God, testifies to the glory of Jesus in front of all of the Pharisees in the synagogue, and he suffers the consequence of that righteousness by being put out shamefully removed from the place of worship. And then Jesus comes to him. And what does he get? Well, Jesus asks him the question, do you believe in the Son of Man? And it's clear he does, but he still doesn't have all the knowledge that he needs, does he? He says, who, who is he? And Jesus says, it's, it's me. You're talking to him right now. And he says, I believe, and then he worships him. And so he's removed from the place of worship, from the synagogue. He's excommunicated. And what does he receive? He receives the opportunity to be in the presence of Jesus, to see him with eyes that had not seen very much. Right? And to truly worship him in a way that was forbidden in the synagogue. If we are content to worship in a way that is uh, prescribed and circumscribed by the rules of men, and that excludes us from actually worshiping God as he is, from worshiping Jesus Christ, we will never be able to worship the true God. Now that's so important. There are all kinds of ways that Pastors and churches want to limit who God is and want to limit our worship of him. And to the extent that they seek to limit the true declaration of who Jesus is, and we are content to stay there, we will never have the opportunity to worship him as he truly is. Does that make sense? I want you to see that there are degrees of this. In this case, they put him out entirely for simply saying he is a prophet, speaking of Jesus, that he's a prophet and that he must have come from God because he couldn't do anything if he wasn't from God. And so it's because he is removed from that that he has the opportunity 
to see Jesus face to face. Similarly, today, we face the temptation to limit who God is, to limit what he has done, to limit his commands in various ways, especially in the church and in worship. And so Presbyterians are often called the frozen chosen because they never actually want to worship with their bodies. We just want to stand here like this. I speak as a Presbyterian. And what is that? Well, it's us wanting to limit worship. It's us wanting to limit who God is and, and how exciting he is, how powerful he is. It's us wanting to limit our worship into safe categories. And the Pharisees were trying to be safe here, and yet they claimed to see. They claimed to see who Jesus really is. Well, not just who Jesus really is, but they claimed to have spiritual sight, to know the truth of God, to know his laws. But Jesus had not just healed the blind man's physical eyes. Jesus had also given him spiritual sight as well. And this is what he says he came to do. Verse 39, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. And this is a hard truth that we don't want to see today. And so right here, we face the temptation to be like the Pharisees, to declare that we see, but to refuse to see what's included in the text right here, and then to silence those, either by plugging our ears or by making them leave, who would force us to actually see this reality. Let's jump back to the Pharisees for a second. And then we'll be able to see how we are tempted to do this. Okay? The Pharisees claimed they could see and therefore condemned themselves to Jesus blinding them. What is it to claim to see? Well, I want us to see that there's to see, to see that there are all sorts of ways for us to claim that we have good sight, that our vision is okay. The first way is to judge others harshly. The Pharisees put the blind man out of the synagogue for declaring the obvious truth about Jesus. And yet, what have they done? Well, they they judge him harshly. They say, you were born entirely in sin. And of course, what is that? That's in contrast to themselves. And do you dare to teach us? The implication being that they are not born entirely in sin. The implication being that they are actually righteous in some way that he isn't.
And so we're warned in Matthew chapter 7 that the measure we use with others to judge them, the ruler that we use to measure them, is the same ruler that will be used to measure us. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. Do not judge so that you will not be judged, for in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. What happens when you have a log in your eye? You can't see. If you have a log in your eye, you can't see. Now what happens if you have a speck in your eye? It's hard to see, right? When you have a speck in your eye, you're like rubbing it and you open it a little, you can only open it a little bit because you're like, ah, it hurts. But you can see a little bit when you've got a speck in your eye. And when you have a log in your eye, you can't see. So the obvious connection to our text is the, this concept of sight, right? Here in John, Jesus ends by saying, I came so that the blind may see, and so that those who see may be, become blind. So again, if we judge others harshly, we end up being those who claim to see and yet are blind. Because to judge others harshly is to care about their speck without having any regard to the log that is in our own eye. In other words, it's to claim to be able to see, to be able to see so well that you're going to open up their eye and you're going to look in and you're going to carefully remove the tiny little thing that's bothering them. Right? You've got to be able to see well to do that. So to judge is to make a claim of sight. And therefore, we have all of the warnings in the New Testament that relate to us not judging, or being careful to judge, or being uh, warnings against hypocrisy in our judgment. They're all over the place, aren't they, these warnings? Jesus says, you hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye. Now, kids, I know that you've experienced this even if you don't understand how, but let me explain it to you. When you are, when you are uh, 
having a disagreement with your brother or your sister or maybe a friend, and the mom or the dad shows up and says, what is going on here? Your first inclination is to answer with what? What word is the first word out of your mouth? He, isn't that the first word? He was, fill in the blank, he was playing with my toy. He was bothering me. She wasn't letting me, she wouldn't share. Isn't this always what our first, what, what was going on here? And you both just point the fingers at each other and say, he, she, they, whatever. And always, that pointing of the finger at the other person and saying what they were doing wrong is you judging them for what they were doing wrong. It's you claiming to be able to see. Do you understand? It's you saying, here, I have good vision. I know what was going on here. Let me explain it to you. And when you start with, he was blah, 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 the, what, that, what that means is that you are implying that you didn't do anything wrong. You know what I mean by implying? Even if you know you did something wrong, you're not telling that part of the story, are you? And normally what you're saying is, well, I did what any reasonable person would have done in that situation. He deserved me hitting him because he wouldn't share his toy with me. Right? Well, this is exactly what the Pharisees were doing. They were claiming to see. And then they were treating the blind man, the man who had been blind, they were treating him sinfully. And what Jesus says to them is, because you claim to be able to see, because you're intent on judging them, therefore your guilt remains. In other words, it's much better for you to say, we were fighting. That's what's going on. Because when you say, we were fighting, what you admit is, I have a log in my eye. I have a log in my eye. We were fighting. And then what can happen? Well, then mom and dad can help you remove the log from your eye. But if you say, oh, no, I know exactly what was going on and it's all his fault, then what you're refusing to see is that you've got the log in your eye. And then what mom and dad have to do is they have to take it and use it on your rear end. It's always better to confess your sins. 
always better to confess your sins than to point your finger at somebody else. To judge others harshly is to claim to see. Where else do we claim to see? Well, the other place where we claim to see is when we care about man's law rather than God's law. The Pharisees didn't want somebody to be helped. They didn't want the man born blind to be healed. They wanted him to suffer so that their traditions could be kept. Now, they would say, no, no, I didn't want him to suffer. I just thought that it was important that we keep the law. And what Jesus would say is, no, you didn't think that it was important that you keep the law. You thought it was important that your traditions be kept. Now, this is another place where we can claim to see. We can claim to see by our carefully constructed traditions that are not the laws of God. Your traditions, our traditions, might have a purpose. They may be good traditions to have. But they are always to be put in second place to God's law. Because God's law is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And as soon as we allow our traditions to go above those things, then what we will be willing to do is to justify not loving our neighbor and claim that it's about keeping God's law. But it cannot be keeping God's law to not love your neighbor, can it? Because that's what God's law is. Love your brother, love your sister, love your neighbor, love each other as you love yourself. And so you see this same kind of thing, you kids, you see this same kind of thing when you're getting into, uh, when you're getting into trouble. Your mom wants to know why you shoved Johnny and he fell down and he's crying. And you say, oh, well, it was because he was trying to touch the computer and I knew that he wasn't allowed to touch the computer. Right? Don't we, don't we love to pin it on, oh, well, I was not just he was doing something bad, but I was actually being righteous. I was keeping, I was attempting to keep the law and to help others keep the law when I decided to hurt him. When I decided to take things into my own hands. And so we have some sort of justification But what we've actually done is we've taken our own traditions and raised them above any law. 
we adults do the same thing. We, uh, we, have various, we have various rules that we set up that have good purposes, right? And, and you can, oh, here's, here's a great one. Um, you decide that you're going to, uh, that you're going to keep Tuesday nights free and that mom and dad are going to go on a date night every week on Tuesday night, right? This is a good tradition, isn't it? All the kids are like, I don't know, who cares? Parents are like, yes, this is a good tradition. There, and, and if you want, you know, if you, think, if you think about it, you can come up with the purposes behind this sort of tradition for the sake of the relationship and the, the strength of the family. And, and so really, this is, this is absolutely necessary. And you'll hear uh, pastors talk about the importance of setting up this kind of thing. And there's, there's nothing wrong with it. It's a good tradition. I, I'm all for it, parents. But then... But then there are going to come those times where you face a decision, right? And the decision is about whether you're going to go ahead and, and have your, your Tuesday night date night that night, or whether you're going to what? It might be have somebody stay with you in your house that night. Or it might be... Uh, Stop on the way home and help the people that are broken down on the side of the road. Oh, I can't do that. I've got a, this is very important holy date night that I have to go on for the sake of my family. My, the, the salvation of my children is what I am seeking. How could I let this flat tire get in the way of that? But what are you seeking? You're seeking your tradition above loving your neighbor. And so you know that what you're actually doing is being selfish, aren't you? Now that date night one is a pretty safe one because I, don't, I look around and I think the number of people in here who actually get to go on a date night might be zero. <laughs> so none of you are tempted to make that one. Well, you're still tempted. You're, you, what you're doing now is you're going, yeah, but isn't it important? I mean, if, shouldn't we be able to do this? None of us in here have been able to do this in how many months? And shouldn't we be seeking to do that? So it is a temptation for some of you. But you kids, you set up, you set up your own traditions too. You just, you just make up random rules on the fly because they, because they are a good way to protect yourself and others from breaking the actual rules, right? So mom, mom said don't play the drums, so I closed the door and wouldn't, Jude, wouldn't let Judah go in the drum room. Wouldn't that be something you'd do, Liam? Just decide that Judah couldn't go in the drum room because mom said no playing the drums. That's the kind of thing I'd do, right? <laughs> no, mom made the rule no playing the drums, so I took it upon myself to make the rule, no going in the drum room. But of course, Judah is allowed to go in the drum room, isn't he? And get the colored pencils, or whatever. And so then Judah's trying to go in the drum room, and he's trying to get the colored pencils out, and they end up in a fight. 
all because we decided we were going to make some silly rule. Do you guys see this in yourself? You see how we make these rules that are like for, for the good, but then we make them the top thing? In other words, we don't actually really care about obeying ourselves. And we don't actually really care about the other person, our neighbor, obeying the real rule. What we really care about is them listening to us right now. That's what we actually begin to care about. What is that? That's to make, to raise our traditions, our rules above the law of God. And so our traditions must always serve, not be served. Our rules must always be Contingent. Contingent on what holiness looks like, what faith looks like. How else do we claim to see? Well, another way that we are that we claim to see is the, the, the more big picture gospel site. Um, we will make a big deal out of the gospel, capital G. <clears throat> and whether or not it's being proclaimed in any given place or at any given time. And so, um, if we claim to know the gospel, we've got to be very, very careful that we are not being hypocrites. We've got to be very, very careful that we are not looking out and saying, well, this is wrong theology, and this is dangerous for the proclamation of the gospel, and this is problematic theologically, and that is problematic in its outworking in, in orthopraxy, and on and on and on and on, okay, without ever submitting ourselves to the gospel itself in our own lives. So this comes back to a theme that we've hit on over the months as we've been going through John, this question of judgment, right? Because on the one hand, we're told don't judge, and on the other hand, we're told judge. And in this case, here Jesus says, for judgment I came into this world, and then I say, therefore, don't judge each other, harshly, right? For judgment I came into the world so that those 
who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. I cannot tell you the number of times that I have seen people who are extraordinarily careful to point out and to criticize any flaw in the theology of somebody else, in the teaching of somebody else, in the preaching, in the Sunday school lesson. And always it's for the protection of their own conscience so that they don't have to feel the weight of themselves having been wrong. And so this is what we do as kids to our parents. When our parents come to us and they say, why are you and Johnny fighting? And we say, well, Johnny was trying to go into the drum room and you said no playing the drums. You say, you shouldn't be making Johnny cry, punching him in the face to keep him out of the drum room. Well, but you said, you said, don't play the drums. Well, this is what we'll do theologically. It's, to, it's, it's an attempt to avoid feeling the weight of our own sin. It's, it's, it's an attempt to avoid feeling the conviction that what we have done is legitimately wrong. And we're being confronted with it. But instead of admitting, yes, what I did was wrong, we turn around and we say, well, you're coming to me wrong. There's this technical detail that you got wrong about the Greek words, and therefore I know I can't trust you. And therefore I know that I don't have to listen to you. And therefore I don't have to feel any conviction over my own sin. Well, what did you mean by telling us not to play the drums if we're allowed to go in that room? In other words, I'm totally justified in fighting with my brother. I was doing it to make him follow your law. But I already got done explaining how it's not actually that we're concerned about them or us following the law. We're actually concerned about justifying ourselves, which is what Jesus says when he says, since you claim to see, it's because of the very fact that you claim to be in the right that your guilt remains. And the reason the guilt remains is because you are unwilling to accept the gospel for yourself. The reason you're unwilling to accept the gospel for yourself is because you're unwilling to repent of your sin. To say, yes, I was blind. And instead, we end up saying, well, I was doing the righteous thing. And therefore, I have nothing to repent of. And therefore, since you're wrong and you do have things to repent of, and you haven't repented of them, your guilt remains. And this is, what, this is what many, many people do with the gospel who sit in church week in and week out. They never feel the weight of their own sin because they always have a judgment. They always have a criticism. They always have 
an excuse, an extraneous detail that didn't get said just right, and then they are protected. They're protected from feeling conviction of their own sin, and it's always by blaming other people, by saying, look at the speck, look at the speck, look at the speck. There's a speck in his eye, and there's a speck in his eye, and there's a speck in his eye, and there's a speck in his eye. And eventually, most of the time, these people stop going to church, stop claiming to be Christians, and they apostatize. Even if they claim to be Christians, people who cannot find anybody that they can listen to, any church that is good enough to actually attend, you know what's going on. They are unwilling to repent of their own sins, and therefore they do not have the gospel. No matter how much they talk about the gospel, they don't have it because they are unwilling to confess their own sins. They are unwilling to say, I'm blind. And because of that, their guilt remains. So this is, this is a question, ultimately, of salvation. But of course, even as true Christians, it's possible for us to act this way. I hope you understand that. We're always tempted to do this in various ways. To, to claim that as Christians we see, and then to be blinded in consequence, in various areas. Even if it's not about, even if it doesn't come down to the gospel and your refusal to confess your sins, it still has the effect of causing you to be blind to certain sins in your life when you claim to be the ultimate judge, when you claim to be the one who has perfect vision, when you claim to be the one that sees. But, Here's where it gets really weird. Our goal is to be sight. Our goal is that we would see and accurately. Our goal is that both the log and the speck would be removed from our eyes, isn't it? And so, we, inevitably, we face this weird situation where at the end we want to say, well... I want to think that I see, but the moment that I say, I see, doesn't that mean that I end up being the one whose guilt remains? But it really does need to be our goal to be able to truly see and to be able to judge the difference between that, doesn't it? It's not acceptable for the blind man to remain blind and be like, yep, I'm still blind. He was actually healed, wasn't he? And then he actually worshipped Jesus. And so Jesus, Jesus doesn't stop with 
if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. He ends with that. But what comes before it? What comes before it is him saying, I came into this world, for judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see. May see. And this is why Paul prays in Ephesians 1, verses 18 and 19, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. The eyes of your heart. In other words, not just the physical eyes like the blind man had healed, but that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? And so here's the beautiful thing. The beautiful thing is that the gospel truly does open your eyes. The gospel truly does reveal to you your sin. It really truly does reveal to you the riches of God's grace. It really does reveal to you the inheritance that the saints of God have. It lets you see the hope that you have. It lets you see the surpassing greatness of God's power in our lives. Have you seen that in your life? Or are you simply stuck saying, oh yes, I see? Have you actually seen it? Like the man born blind. When we actually see it, we can't help but do exactly what the man born blind did. And he worshipped him. He worshipped him. It's as we see what he has accomplished that this meal that we're about to celebrate becomes meaningful to us. Otherwise, if we are simply like the Pharisees who claim to see what we end up doing as we celebrate this meal is simply bringing further condemnation on ourselves. But if by the grace of God our eyes have been enlightened to see who we truly are and then to confess, yeah, there's nothing good in me. Yeah, I'm totally blind apart from God working in me. Then what does he do? He gives us sight. Let's pray.